0: confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness let's take a moment of prayer a prayer and it's also an opportunity to confess any sins that uh, we haven't already let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you for the opportunity to gather corporately we ask that you give us eyes to see Help us understand your truth and transform us by your truth. Help us remember that your truth is absolute and there is no other. And challenge us by what we will learn this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we were together, we finished Isaiah's prayer, which he began in chapter 63, verse 15. This is... It was perhaps the most impassioned, the most intense prayer found in the entire book of Isaiah. It was a prayer for an Israel that had rebelled against God, for an Israel that was under divine punishment, divine judgment. And so as we saw in the prayer, we saw the prophet confess the sin of the people, including himself. He says it as a we, he says it as an us, confessing, acknowledging Israel's wrongdoing before God. And in the prayer, he saw the unthinkable. He saw the unimaginable that Israel would be destroyed, not just Israel, not just the northern kingdom as the Assyrians had done, but the southern kingdom with Babylon, Jerusalem itself, the capital, and then the most unthinkable of all, the temple, the abode of God on the planet where the Shekinah glory dwelt. Shekinah means that which dwelt where the special presence of God dwelt among his people, the temple itself would be looted and pillaged by the pagan Babylonians and burned to the ground. This was beyond the pale, just beyond what he could imagine, but it's all memorialized there in the prayer that began in chapter 63, verse 15, and finishes at the end of chapter 64. And so because of all these things, the prophet cries out. He cries out to God on behalf of the righteous remnant. He cries out to God, and I'm paraphrasing here, but his cry to God is, we're your people. We're your chosen people. Do something. Do something. Act. Come down from heaven and do something about our pathetic condition. Look back at the words that he prayed Starting with chapter 63, verse 15. Turn back there in your Bibles. I want you to, to remember how poignant his words are in this impassioned prayer. In chapter 63, verse 15, the prophet said, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained towards me. Can I paraphrase? Do something. Do something. Act, God. Jump down to chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Step, please, please, step out of your realm and step into our realm and do something for your people Israel. Jump down to verse 6. The prophet says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You see, Isaiah, in humility, acknowledges their sin. Look at the end of verse 9. He says in this prayer, Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion, which is a reference to Jerusalem. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, the temple, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our precious things have become a, become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself as these, at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? Please do something, God. And so chapters 65 and chapter 66 are God's response. In those chapters, God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something, of course, I'm going to do something, and I'm going to do something that is beyond your wildest dreams. Today what I want to give you is an introduction to chapters five, 65 and 66. Remember the old saying, if you've studied history, you've heard it, all roads lead to Rome. Really what they meant by the imp- that statement in the empire was all roads lead out from Rome because Rome was the epicenter of the empire, the Roman Empire. Well, the statement, all roads lead to Rome, I'm going to change a little bit. What happens in the book of Isaiah is that all the chapters, all the doctrines, all the teachings lead to chapter 65 and 66, to the last two chapters of the book. This is where you have the climax, the culmination of everything that's been happening in the book. In these final chapters, God responds to Isaiah's prayer by saying, of course, of course, I will not leave my chosen people in their pathetic, sad, broken condition. Of course, I will act on behalf of Israel. Of course, I will crack open the sky and come from heaven to this planet, to your realm. And in fact, I'm going to do much, much, much more. God responds to Isaiah's prayer Prayer by giving him spectacular prophecy. That's what's chalked full of these final two chapters. Incredible prophecy. By the way, prophecy is just the name, name for promise. It's a promise of what God is going to do. That's what a prophecy is. And so in these final chapters, we will see prophecies about God recreating Jerusalem and actually recreating the entire universe. We'll see prophecies about God establishing an eternal kingdom, His eternal kingdom of peace and prosperity and righteousness. We'll see prophecies about the final act in human history, which is the reckoning. It's a horrible description. We'll see it. It's a terrifying description. We will see a prophecy here in these final chapters. It's actually the very last verse of the book, which is the reckoning of God that... God will bring to eternally eliminate the unrighteous. To eternally eliminate unrighteousness and to eternally reward the righteous. We will see many contrasts in these final chapters of the book of Isaiah. For example, we'll see a contrast between the new creation and the old creation. We'll see a contrast between the new Jerusalem and the old Jerusalem. We'll see a contrast between the ones who serve God and the ones who scorn him, who provoke him. We'll see a contrast between God's eternal blessing and his eternal judgment. A contrast between a patient, long-suffering God and a God who is full of fury and wrath. You see, these final chapters are giving the prophet a glimpse of the end times. You see, the prophet only has a glimpse of the end times. Why? Because the book of Isaiah is about in the middle of the Bible. That's all he's got. He's got half the Bible. It's like it's just this. He doesn't have the other half where you see many, many more descriptions and the progression of Revelation, the unfolding of Revelation, many, many more descriptions of the prophecies of God. We, through the unfolding of Scripture, through the unfolding of the Word of God, have much more detail about the end times. And if we do something that you shouldn't do that often, it's okay to do it, but if we do something of taking the New Testament and putting those glasses on and reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, we see that the last two chapters of the book are all about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. The reason I say you shouldn't do that too often is because if you take the New Testament and you read the Old Testament, at least initially you read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, you initially miss what the Old Testament writer is writing to his audience. Now you can do that, and in fact you should, Look at the New Testament and see how it interplays with the Old Testament. But the first thing that you should do when you read the Hebrew Scriptures is understand what the, what the writer is writing to his audience without taking the New Testament and injecting it into the, into the analysis. The first thing that you do is read what the Hebrew writer is writing to his Hebrew audience in that time and context. Then you go to the New Testament and say, oh, now I see this in the bigger picture. First you look at the message of the, of the book of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the message of the Old Testament. And then the second thing you do is you go to the New Testament to get the full panorama of how that fits in the full picture. But if you go to the New Testament first, then you miss some of what is being taught by the Old Testament writer to his Old Testament audience. So that's why I say, you can do that and you should do that. But be careful. First go to the intent of the writer, that writer, before you go to the intent of another writer like the the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. And when we look at the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, it becomes clear that what Isaiah is talking about in these final two chapters of the book is nothing other than the second coming of Christ. What I want to do today is just give you a, an introduction. Just give you a sampling of what you will see in chapters 65 and chapter 66 of the, six, of the book of Isaiah. We'll get to verse-by-verse verse analysis. Not today, but as we go through it in the next few weeks. Right now, I just want you to get a flavor of where we're going Near the beginning of these chapters, God recounts his patience to a rebellious Israel. Look at chapter 65, verse 2. There we read Yahweh speaking. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. What what does Isaiah say earlier? When he he says the, the, the words of God, he says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. God speaks through his prophet Isaiah a few chapters earlier. Here God says, who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, or if we could use the phrase from the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what happens when we follow our own thoughts. Verse three, a people who continually provoke me to my face. You see, God was patient with Israel, to use the old English word long suffering. Long suffering is this idea of patience in the face of something that that is disturbing. Now nothing's I use the word disturbing cautiously with God because, you know, that word kind of connotes that something takes God by surprise. Nothing does, because He's omniscient. But long-suffering, the old English word long-suffering, has the idea of you want to act, but you restrain yourself in patience. God's patience towards His people was continuous. That's why He's described here with hands spread out. Like a father who beckons a rebellious child with his hands spread out, Come to me come, come. That's the imagery that the prophet describes here of the patience of God, but the people responded with provocation and scorn. So then you see a few verses later in verse 6, look at verse 6 of chapter 65, God saying that He will destroy those Israelites who are rebellious, who scorn Him, who provoke Him. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 6 reads like this, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent. Remember Isaiah in his prayer? He says, how long are you going to keep silent? God answers the question right here. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom. But their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says Yahweh. Jump to verse 8. Thus says Yahweh, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. Like earlier in the book of Isaiah, we see here the imagery of a wine press. We see the imagery of God's wine press where he culls the grapes. He distinguishes the grapes. He culls between the bad grapes and the good grapes. And the bad grapes he destroys. That's the word that's used there, right? At the end of verse 8. But rather than destroy all of the grapes, he calls out the good grapes. The good grapes are those who seek him. The bad grapes are those who reject him. Jump down to verse 11. Here we see God contrasting between Israelites who seek him and Israelites who don't. Actually, verse, let's start with verse 10. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Akkor, a resting place for herds. For my people who seek me, God will deliver the righteous remnant, the righteous remnant of Israel. Keep reading verse 11. But you who forsake Yahweh, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, we'll see this in more detail when we get to this verse, as a verse-by-verse study. The word fortune is capitalized in your Bibles. It should be. Because it's not really Fortune. It's the name of a God. The Hebrew word, God. It's a name, it's the name of a God of luck. That's who they worship, the God of luck. By the way, there is no such thing as luck. Please don't tell someone good luck. That doesn't exist. It's a fiction. There's no such thing as good luck or bad luck. Here, God condemns the Israelites for worshiping luck. A God who is the God of luck. Verse 12, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called but you did not answer. I spoke but you did not hear and you did evil in my sight. Verse 12 refers to the Israelites being forced to bow down to the slaughter, for the slaughter, for them being slaughtered. And verse 8 describes Israelites being destroyed in the wine press. Now again, we're talking about Israelites who rebel against God. What we're really talking about is what's referred to as Daniel's 70th week from the prophecy in Daniel. It's the seven-year tribulation. More specifically, it's the second half of the seven-year tribulation where God brings extreme destruction upon Israel. It's what Jeremiah called in Jeremiah twenty Daniel's excuse me Jacob's distress, Jacob's trouble. The seven year tribulation is part of the end times, and when I say the end times, I use that as a term of art. I use that as a precise term. I don't mean the stuff that's just is coming in the future. When I say end times, what I mean is the next event on God's prophetic calendar which could happen before we finish the message now could happen in 30 minutes could happen in 30 days could happen in 30 months could happen in 30 years we don't know when it's going to happen it's imminent when I say the end times I mean the first event that is on God's prophetic calendar and all the dominoes that follow in quick succession thereafter When I say the end times, I mean the the rapture of the church and everything that follows thereafter. There is no prophecy that is required before the rapture of the church, before Jesus returning to take his church with him, where he returns for his church. That's the next event on the calendar. And when that event happens, you have a quick succession, quick succession of additional. Events. Here's what I mean by the end times. I mean, number one, the rapture of the church. Number two, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ happens after the rapture of the church. You can think of it as the evaluation seat of Christ. It's the bema, right? The bema is a Greek term for a seat, a seat of authority, the, the, the general. The Roman general would sit on the bema or some other general would sit on a bema and evaluate his troops. Pilate sits on the bema when he judges Jesus. Think of it. A man, a wicked, sinless man judging the living God. Pilate sits on the bema. Jesus will sit on the bema to evaluate all of you. To evaluate what you thought today What you said today, what you did today, and yesterday, and tomorrow, for your entire life. You can't lose your salvation at the bema, but your eternal destiny in God's kingdom will be determined by the bema. When I say the end times, I mean the seven-year tribulation, the first half of it, and the second half of it, the second half of it being the great tribulation. The church is in heaven during this seven-year tribulation. I also mean Christ's return in Revelation 19, Messiah's return. Let me stop for a moment in this sequence of events of the end times. When Isaiah is writing this, right, he doesn't think of Christ. Right? That word Christ doesn't exist. There's no English language. Right? He thinks of the term Messiah, Mashiach, the Greeks come along and Alexander comes along and conquers the Middle East, conquers Persia, even makes his way to India, conquers Egypt, all of the, the, the whole region. And he brings Greek to the region in the 300-ish A.D. Remember, Isaiah's writing about 400 years before that, around 700-ish. So then the Greeks come in. They use Koine Greek, the, the, the Greek of the, of the street. Not classical Greek; they need a, a, a homogeneity among the, the, in the in the Greek Empire that, that Alexander has conquered, and so they spread Koine Greek. Then, when the when the New Testament is written, it's written in Koine Greek. Messiah translated into English, uh, excuse me, into Greek. Christos, translated into English, Christ. When Isaiah is writing, he knows nothing about the first and second coming of Mashiach, of Christ. Because that distinction is not presented in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's what Lewis Perry Schaeffer used to call the intercalation of the church. In other words, the Christ comes, then he ascends to heaven, and there's a period here of the church. Then Christ returns. When the Old Testament prophets wrote, they saw the mountaintops, but not the valley. The valley here in the imagery is the intercalation, the, the church age. My point is that Isaiah, when he's writing, he just sees and understands the mountaintops, that Messiah will come, that there are prophecies about Messiah. Messiah will come, Messiah will judge, Messiah will bring prosperity. But he doesn't understand the distinction between the first coming and the second coming. That's where the New Testament is important. It's critical when it comes to understanding the prophecies of God, the end times. So this is the fourth event on the calendar, God's calendar of prophecy is Christ's return. The fifth event is Christ's judgment before the thousand-year reign, what Christ describes in Matthew 25, 32 as the judgment of the sheep and the goats where he gathers all the nations before he institutes extreme prosperity on the planet. Before he institutes his reign of a thousand years of peace and justice and prosperity, he eliminates all unbelievers because only believers are allowed to enter into the thousand-year reign. Now, over time, as babies are born, children make their own decisions and there will be unbelievers in the millennial reign, but only believers will enter and Messiah will ensure that because he will remove all unbelievers at the judgment that precedes the thousand-year reign, what's referred to as the judgment of the sheep and the goats. The sixth event on, Christ, on, on God's prophetic calendar, when I say the end times, the sixth event of the end times, and, I, and I'm talking big picture here. Right? I mean, there, there are prophecies that are a little, little bit more detailed, like in Ezekiel, there are prophecies about the details of the millennial temple. I'm talking about prophecies that are kind of the big picture prophecies on God's prophetic calendar. There's the thousand-year reign itself. The reason why we believe in a thousand-year reign as opposed to just a long period, some extended period, is because 1,000 years is mentioned six times in one chapter, in chapter 20 of the book of revelation you know if it was mentioned once okay you know let's have a conversation does that is is that is that kind of spiritualized language does it just mean a long period of time but it's mentioned six times it's pretty difficult to not take that literally when it's mentioned six times in one single chapter that's why we say there is a thousand literal thousand year reign of christ The seventh thing on God's prophetic calendar is the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And the eighth thing is the most spectacular of them all. This when God will destroy everything that you can see and touch and feel right now. He will destroy the planet. He will destroy the universe. He will destroy the stars and the sun and the moon, and He'll just make them new again. He will make them new again for His eternal kingdom. This is when He ushers in the eternal kingdom. In the final two chapters of the book of Isaiah, we see some but not all of the prophetic picture of the end times. The full picture is given to us as the progress of Revelation unfolds, as the Scripture unfolds like as far as the book of Revelation. Let's drill back to our passages, to our verses, our kind of sampling of verses in chapter 65 and chapter 66. Please turn to verse 17 of chapter 65 of Isaiah. There I want you to see in this introduction that we're doing today that God prophesies his destruction of the current heavens and the earth and his creation of a new one. Verse 17 reads like this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The new heavens and the new earth will be so spectacular that the old one will be forgotten. No one's going to want to think of the current earth and the current universe. It's going to be so piddly, so boring, so uneventful in comparison to what God is bringing. You think the images from the Hubble telescope are impressive and they are. Nothing. Nothing compared to what God is coming to deliver when he destroys the current one and builds creates, I'm sure just like the first one with a with a word. I'm sure he will just speak it into existence like the first one, but the second one will be so amazing that the first, he says here, will not be remembered, will not come to mind. It's just going to be boring. And in fact, part of the reason why we're not going to want to remember the first one is because the first one was tainted and infected by sin. But the new one will be complete, absolute righteousness. Jump down to verse 20. There we see in our introduction today that God prophesies that he will transform human life. It says, No longer will there be in it, the it, there is Jerusalem, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at an age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. This is part of the prophecy for the thousand year reign, which is really, as many have said, just the front porch of the eternal kingdom. This is, it, the thousand year reign is a preview of of what's coming in the eternal kingdom. The reason I make that distinction here between the thousand-year reign and the eternal kingdom is because the eternal kingdom has zero death. Why? Because there's zero sin. Death is a product of sin. Here, we're talking about death. We're talking about people dying at, excuse me, someone who dies before 100 years old is going to be thought accursed, What God is revealing here is that he's going to transform human health. Isaiah doesn't understand this as a thousand-year reign because thousand years is not disclosed. That time period of a thousand years, that's not disclosed until Revelation chapter 20. Isaiah is just understanding this as God's reign or Messiah's reign on the earth that it's going to transform human life, human health that's the point of verse 20 is that God's reign on the earth will bring extreme prosperity including extreme human health. Lifespans will be much longer kind of like they were before the flood. Remember you have all these descriptions of people who lived well over 900 years before the flood. Noah, Enosh, Seth, Methuselah. What we're seeing here in verse 20 is that God is going to transform human life and human health. The things that kill us today by age 100, there is an incredibly high certainty that everyone in this room will be dead by age 100. That's just the statistical likelihood of it. <laughs> it's just the fact. And what kills us by age 100, all the many diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, strokes, heart attacks, you know all the stuff that cholesterol does to you, all the different sorts of diseases, diabetes, cancers, all those things, apparently, they're going to be gone. Apparently, during the thousand-year reign, Christ is going to remove all of those things. And so when someone dies at 100, it's going to be this horrible tragedy. What? He died at 100 today. We say somebody made it to 100. say, wow, that's a long life. But not then. It's going to be a tragedy when someone lives only to 100. What it's saying is everybody's going to live extremely long lives. Jump down to verse 25. Here we see God prophesying that he will transform not human health, but animal life. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. Finally. Right? What was the prophecy in Genesis 3? To the serpent, the punishment to the serpent. You will eat dust from the ground. Finally. Finally, that will be literally fulfilled, but the last Adam is the one who will literally fulfill it. The last Adam. Jesus Christ, when he returns. Keep reading. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says Yahweh. Again, this is a a description, a reference of the thousand-year reign. The extreme prosperity of that era will include peace and prosperity, peace and security, not just for humans, but for animals. The reason why we have carnivores, the reason why the wolf devours the lamb, Or the lion devours the gazelle, which is a brutal affair. The reason for that is sin. It wasn't made that way in the garden. There's no death in the garden before sin, before Genesis 3. But what happens in the thousand-year reign is that the second Adam comes to undo what the first Adam messed up. And he will turn the carnivores into herbivores. And so the wolf and the lion will graze just like the sheep and the goat. They won't be a threat anymore to livestock nor to humans. Jump down to verse 2 of chapter 66. Here we see God proclaiming what he values most. Proclaiming what he blesses most. For my hand made all these things, God says. Thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit. Somebody read that last phrase for me. I can't hear you. And trembles at his word. Is that you? Is that me? Do you tremble at the word of God? You see, what God is saying here is, I love my creation. I made it. I'm going to recreate it. I love my creation. I bless my creation. I value my creation. But what I bless and value the most in my creation is the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. Which is to say, the one who obeys it, the one who respects it, the one who approaches it in awe and wonder. That's who I bless the most in my creation. That's who I value the most. You see, the book has been teaching us this. The book This is not new to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has been teaching this throughout all the chapters. And now we see it in this glorious, beautiful language at the end of the book in the climax, the, the culmination of the book. In these last two chapters, we find the eternal blessing, eternal forever blessing for the humble, and contrite for the obedient. Then in verse 4, we see a contrast. In verse 4 of chapter chapter 66, we see that God declares, not blessing, but punishment and judgment for the one who rejects Him. So I will choose their punishments, God says, and will bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight and chose that which, in which I did not delight. Eternal punishments are reserved for those who reject God, who ignore God. And here we see God, this is the part that is terrifying. We see God selecting punishments, choosing punishments and choosing the one. What's the word that he uses there at the end of the first sentence of verse 4? Dread. He chooses not just garden variety punishments. He selects punishments that are dreadful for his enemies. You, You say, well, no, 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 no. I thought God was loving. I thought God was merciful. I thought God was gracious. He is all those things. You're right. But he's more. He's also a God of justice. He's also a God of wrath. He's also a God of holiness and a God of righteousness. And with the same intensity with which he showers blessing on the humble and contrite and those who tremble at his word, with that same intensity that he showers blessing on them, he inflicts dreadful punishments That He selects for those who reject Him. This is God. You can't worship a God of your own imagination who is just a God of love and mercy and grace. He is that. But He's also a God of judgment and wrath. Jump down to verse 12 where you see God prophesying about how He will exalt Israel. For thus says Yahweh, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river. The her here is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is is an image not just for the city, but for all of Israel. Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. You see what God does? He dotes. He dotes on Jerusalem. Like she's, a, like she's a one-year-old baby. God describes himself, himself here as a nursing mother who pampers his child, who pampers Israel, who dotes on her, who nurses her, who carries her on his hip, right? You see a mom carrying a baby on the hip. That's not new to us. We didn't invent that. And they've been doing that for thousands of year, years. And God describes himself As a mama, just to be clear, God is neither male nor female, right? I'm not suggesting you should go out and buy a Bible that describes God as she. God uses a male pronoun to describe himself, but he is neither male or female. He is using an imagery here of a nursing mother who carries the baby on her hip or who has the baby on her knees and kind of caresses the baby. That's how he will dote on Israel, He doesn't say this for China. He doesn't say this for America. He doesn't say it for Mexico or the UK or or France. He says this doting promise for his people Israel. He's saying to Isaiah in response to his prayer, yes, of course, of course, I will come from heaven and care for my people, my chosen people. Of Israel. Look at the word he uses. He says, Behold, I extend shalom, peace to her like a river. It's just going to flow. What does is, what, what is that word, that Hebrew word shalom, mean? It's when someone sees it's, it's a greeting. Shalom to you. Shalom. It's so rich. It means wholeness, completeness, prosperity peace and God is saying here that that is the destiny not just for a thousand years but forever for his people Israel why do we care if we are Gentiles because through his blessing of Israel he blesses us then we get to verse 14 of chapter 66 in this introduction today and there we see God prophesying about he will how he will destroy the enemies. Of Israel. Verse 14 begins like this Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like the new grass, and the hand of Yahweh will be known to his servants, but he will be indignant toward his enemies. For behold, Yahweh will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render anger with fury, and his rebuke with the flame of fire. For Yahweh will execute judgment by fire and by His sword on all flesh and those slain by Yahweh will be many. I think this is a reference to Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 which will make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. I think this is a, refer- a reference to the revelation of Christ returning in chapter 19 of the Apocalypse. That's the Greek word for the word for the book of Revelation. Don't say Revelations. It's not the book of Revelations. It is the Revelation of the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That is the name of the last book in the Bible. And I think that's, this is what it is referring to in chapter 19 of the last book of the Bible where Christ returns, where He cracks open the sky to return not in humility... He did that already. To return not on the colt of a donkey as he proceeded into Jerusalem. If you see an image of a man on a donkey, you almost want to, on a a, a young little donkey, you almost want to chuckle. He will return not on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey, but on a war horse, ready for battle. This is the description that I think Isaiah is making, is referring to I think this passage not only refers to Christ coming to execute judgment on his enemies, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. It also is a reference to the events of Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, which are the Gog and Magog revolution, when Satan will deceive the nations one last time. One last time. In a final revolt against God and against Israel. And there you see in Revelation 20 that the consequences of that that, is that fire is summoned from the heavens and it consumes them. It consumes those who have engaged in the Gog and Magog revolution. I use those terms, Gog and Magog, because those are the terms that are used there in Revelation 20 where they will be consumed and devoured. When the prophet Isaiah receives this message from God, in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 14 through 16, which we just read with these references to judgment by fire, I think it's referring to, to Revelation 19, where Christ returns to judge the enemies. When I say judge, I mean to slaughter the armies that are gathered against Israel at the valley of Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo. Har Mountain. Megiddo. Megiddo is is, is a place in Israel. Har is mountain in Hebrew. Har, Megiddo, is our English word, Armageddon. I think Isaiah is referring to to that. I think Isaiah is referring to the Gog and Magog revolution, uh, revolution at the end of human history, which God will quench with fire. And I think he's referring to a third thing. I think he's referring to the description that is at the very end of chapter 20 of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It is the lake of fire into which all the enemies of God will be cast. Forever. For eternal punishment. The devil, his fallen angels, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all the unbelievers of all generations. This is why God is referring to a judgment by fire and uses the term fire many times in this description here in Isaiah chapter 66. Then we get to verse 18 of chapter 66 where God prophesies that He will judge the nations. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory Remember earlier I said you read the text first, the Hebrew text. You read the text, which is translated into English. You read the the, the Hebrew scripture first with respect to what the writer is communicating to his audience. And sometimes you don't get the full picture of it. You study it there, and then the second step is to go elsewhere. In this case, to the New Testament. And so what we're seeing here is the judgment of the sheep and the goats. This is the judgment that Jesus describes in Matthew 25. When all the nations are summoned, Jesus has returned in the Olivet Discourse, called the Olivet Discourse because he's on the Mount of Olives, just to the east of the temple. In the the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 25, Jesus is describing where all the nations will be summoned, judged, judged. Sheep and the goats judgment. And then the millennial reign will begin. That's the description here in verse 18 of chapter 66. I think that is what the prophet is referring to. Then we get to verse 22. And there God prophesies that Israel will endure forever. Verse 22 reads like this. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares Yahweh, so your offspring and your name will endure in the same way that the new heavens and the new earth will last forever and ever and ever. Israel. Because God is making a link here, right? He's connecting the two. He's saying in the same way that the new heavens and the new universe and the new earth will last forever. Israel will be eternal. Why? Why is there no reference to India or to Yemen or to Zimbabwe? Why? Why is Israel the only reference here? In terms of a promise of eternality for Israel. It is because of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed because God in His sovereignty chose a Semitic man to create a Semitic nation, Israel, to communicate His glory to the world through them. This is why we're so interested in Israel because through Israel, God communicates His blessing to the world. And so this is why Israel is is the forever nation. She is at the core. She is front and center in the eternal kingdom. I think there will be nations in the eternal kingdom. There's a reference to nations towards the end of Revelation in the description of the eternal kingdom. But the only name that is given for the nation that is forever is the nation of Israel. Because through her all the other nations will be blessed. This is why there's such detail in Revelation 20 about the new Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And then finally in verse 24 of chapter 66, God prophesies about the horrible, about the final judgment. The very last verse of the book is the prophecy about the final reckoning, verse 24. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses corpses of the men who have transgressed against me for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind since the beginning of the book the prophet has been warning about the reckoning he's been warning and prophesying and teaching and proclaiming that there will be a reckoning see the world dismisses that Reckoning, smacking, whatever. The world blows that off. Because if you acknowledge that there's a reckoning, then you have to acknowledge, I got to get right with God somehow. Ooh, eh, I, I'm not good enough to get right with God. I need Him to make me right. See, that process of thinking. You can, you can hide. You can run from it. You can shove the beach ball under the water as much as you can as long as you convince yourself that there's no reckoning. The Scripture here is clear. In the last verse of the book, we see the reckoning in two terrible ways. It's with this phrase that says, They will look on the corpses of men who transgressed against God. This probably refers to Revelation 19 where you see this description where Christ slaughters all the, all the armies that are gathered against Jerusalem and then he sends the angel to summon the birds for the feast to eat on the corpses. I don't know how many are gathered in the army in those armies against Jerusalem. I suspect it's millions. Millions of soldiers. You've got to have a lot of ravens and vultures and all these other you have to have many 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 birds to consume all those corpses this is a gruesome image but it's an image of judgment it's an image of judgment that Messiah will bring the second terrible reckoning that we see here in this verse is not the temporary reckoning of being slaughtered. right? Human death is terrible. But there's something much worse than death, human death. Death in this world is terrible. But there's something much worse than that. It's forever death. It's death that never ends. And so you see this description. Their worm will not die. And their fire will not be quenched. This is the final reckoning. The final judgment where the rebels will be, re- will be resurrected because they died physically. And the rebels will be resurrected not with a body to enjoy God's blessing forever in His eternal kingdom. They'll be resurrected with a body that is, in, that is designed to endure eternal suffering, to be punished for eternity. Isaiah has been talking about a book. He's been talking throughout this book about a reckoning. And here you see it in graphic terms at the end of the book. Today was just a preview. I just wanted you to get a sampling of what we're going to see in these final two chapters of the book of Isaiah where all the teachings of the book are culminated. And they climax in this final couplet of chapters. We'll see these verses in our verse-by-verse study of the last two chapters as we go through it over the next few weeks. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise You. We fear You. We come to You in awe and respect and worship. We ask that you break us. Break us of our pride. Break us of our desire to wander from you. Make us humble. Humble us before you. Make us contrite. And help us tremble at your word. Help us not take you or your word casually. Help us obey you. Give us eyes to see the importance of these things. And give us a heart for you. We pray all these things, recognizing that in the end it is our choice. We do not attribute to you our wrongdoing. We recognize that we have free will, but at the same time we ask for your assistance like David asked. Give us a pure heart, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.